0: Hello, I'm Ann Mossop, Sydney Writers' Festival Artistic Director. We hope you enjoy this episode from our podcast program. Assalamu alaikum. Um, <clears throat> we would like to start by acknowledging the Gadigal of the Eora Nation, the traditional custodians of this land, and pay our respects and our salams to the Elders past, present and emerging. My name is uh, Michael Muhammad Ahmed, and I am the founding director of Sweatshop Literacy Movement, and I am also an author. Um, The person that I am talking to today, that I'm interviewing, is Dr. Mahreen Faruqi. I'm going to read you her bio to begin, and I'm going to read it from this utterly fantastic book that I strongly recommend everyone grab a copy of after this event. Um, Dr. Mahreen Faruqi is the Green Senator for New South Wales. She is a civil and environmental engineer and lifelong activist for social and environmental justice. In 2013, she joined the New South Wales Parliament, becoming the first Muslim woman to sit in an Australian parliament. In 2018, she became Australia's first Muslim female senator. Before I go on, that deserves a round of applause in its own right. (laughs) Thank you. She is a passionate advocate against racism and misogyny. Since immigrating from Pakistan in 1992, Mahreen has worked in leadership positions in local government, consulting firms, and as an academic in Australia and internationally. This includes her roles as Manager of Environment and Services for Mossman Council, Manager of Natural Resources and Catchments for Port Macquarie Hastings Council, Director of the Institute of Environmental Studies at UNSW and as an Associate Professor in Business and Sustainability at UNSW. While in New South Wales Parliament, she introduced the first ever bill to decriminalise abortion. mahreen has been a leading voice in opposition to the greyhound racing industry, privatisation of public transport, and removal of laws that protect native vegetation. Since joining the Federal Senate in 2018, Mahreen has been an outspoken advocate for public education, anti-racism, public housing, and animal welfare. Please join me in giving her a very, very warm well welcome. Thank you for being here,
1: Thank you so much, everyone. Thanks, Mohammed. Assalamualaikum. Alaikum. Hi, everyone.
0: Mahreen, um, the first question is, you, you know what? It's, it must be a very difficult time for you right now. Um, and, and not just uh, in the lead up to this election, but specifically from your socio-political identity as, an, as a, uh, a brown m- Muslim woman in politics. And so the first question I, I want to start with is how are you doing?
1: Oh, <laughs> so I love campaigning, Mohammed. Um, so you know, in the last five weeks, six weeks, long campaign, but I love being out and about. I've travelled Australia in the last couple of months, from Perth to Adelaide to Melbourne to Brisbane, um, and you know, all over New South Wales, and you know, it's just fantastic meeting communities, hearing about you know what they want Australia to look like after the election. Um, so, yeah, for me, that's that's what I do, that I love people, and this is a fabulous
0: opportunity to go around um, talking and listening. Um, well, on that point, you know, I, I promised myself, uh, firstly, I chose to interview you. Um, I requested you uh, for this dialogue out of a list of about 100 writers, um, well before I could even have imagined that it was going to be the day before the election. So, I'm not... I'm gonna be honest, I'm not interested in the election. Um, but, but I do feel like it's the big elephant in the room. So just to get that elephant out of the way, I, I, wanted, I wanted to just ask you one question. And the, the, the only question that's really on my mind is, what advice do you have for the audience today about, about, what, about the, our responsibilities as, as voters and um, what, what those responsibilities will look like when we go into the voting booths tomorrow?
1: Well, my response to that will be biased, (laughs) so I guess my topmost response is go out and vote green people, uh, because, you know, I mean, yes, exactly. (laughs) But I think it is an important election. I've spent the last three years in Parliament under a pretty toxic government. Uh, which has been, um, you know, horrendous for um, people of colour, for First Nations people, for women, um, you know, for for everyone in in Australia, frankly, we have achieved nothing. And we, we have gone backwards in so many things. So if you do care about Australia becoming once again an egalitarian society, which I thought it was when I came here in 1992 from Pakistan, I learned in time that, you know, um, it was basically, um, you know, said Australia was made on the dispossession and violence of First Nations people and learned other things. But I think there was a time in Australia where people and politicians had worked hard um, to make this place better for communities. And I think those days are past us, frankly. That's what I have seen. I've seen in more, more and more career politicians, more and more corruption. Um, so if you want to change that, um, then make sure you vote for parties and politicians who you believe have policies and integrity that will work for the communities, for people and our planet tomorrow.
0: Um, thanks, Mahreen. So le- let's talk about your book. Yes, much more fun thing. <laughs> um, and and there, there will be some nice crossover between politics and literature in this conversation, but um, two migrant. Too Muslim, Too Loud. You know, I've been thinking about that title all week as I prepared for this session. The, the word uh, being a migrant is fine. Being a Muslim is fine. Me and you are pretty loud, you know, we're brown migrant Muslims, we're, we're, we're loud. We might sound like we're shouting, but we're just speaking loudly. <laughs> um, it's the word too that I find uh, an interesting concept, you know, T-double-O. Uh, Because it means excess. It it means something has gone beyond an acceptable amount. And so my question to you to start our conversation about your book is, what what does it mean to be too much of something in, in this context, in the Australian context, as a migrant Muslim woman? So the title, very deliberately chosen, these are,
1: I guess, terms that over time have been used to denigrate me pretty much, you know, when I'm criticized or when I get vile hate and abuse and, you know, sexist and racist kind of comments, uh, whether they come on social media, whether they come through a phone call to my staff, through an email, through a handwritten letter or face-to-face, this is the kind of thing that I I feel and I know that people don't like me for. These are my identities, you know. Yes, I am a migrant. I will wear my cultural clothes, the shalwar kameez, whenever I want to. You know, I will speak in my mother language whenever I want to. I'm a Muslim. Um, And yes, I, I will join the public debate as loudly as any other politician or any other public figure. And why is it that people like Scott Morrison... Um, you know, they can wear their identities on their sleeve, whatever Daggy Dad or whatever his identity is. And that's all well and good, right? Anthony Albanese can wear his identity. Like, he's seen as someone who loves craft beer, you know, go around breweries and do that. And that's all fine. Um, so, you know, f- for me, I am, I, I am very proud. I make it crystal clear that I am unapologetically a brown migrant Muslim woman who will speak her mind and who will speak her truth and to hell with everyone else. <laughs> it is, you know, this too muchness depends on who you are when you're called too much of this, that, or the other. It is basically dependent on who you are. Like if, if a white man stands up and, and is angry about an issue, that's all fine. But if someone like me or a black woman stands up speaks angrily with suddenly angry black or brown women. Um, I don't accept that. I never will. Um, So, you know, people can denigrate me, but I very proudly wear these titles. That's my identity. That's who I am. I'm not going to change. I'm here to change the system that calls us too much of this, that, or the other.
0: Thank you, Mahreen. And, you know... The, the title and what you just said, it reminds me of a quote from the late bell Hooks, who's an African-American feminist, activist, scholar, and writer who sadly passed away last, last year, but whose uh, memory and words live on in our, um, in our lives. A, a concept called coming to voice, which is the act of moving from silence to speech as a revolutionary gesture. And I do think of your book as a, as an, as a revolutionary act. It's, a, it's coming to voice. Um, and so as part of that act and as part of the story in the book, I want to go right to the beginning. So I think a lot about um, a comment that Barack Obama made when he was president. He was once asked, what keeps you up at night? And he said, Pakistan. And I immediately interpreted this statement to be inherently Islamophobic. The subtext is that Pakistan is a Muslim country that has nuclear weapons. There's this assumption that Muslims with nuclear weapons are more dangerous than other countries, even though the United States is the only country that's ever actually dropped one on a civilian population. I want to ask you about Pakistan. Growing up there, what are some of the, the realities of being Pakistani, having a Pakistani identity, of the place that we imagine to be Pakistan, versus some of the misconceptions and stereotypes?
1: So, maybe I'll start with talking about growing up in Pakistan, and I thought I might read just a little bit from um, the book. Okay, here we go. Um, It's it's strange how a plane trip can take you from a secure, predictable life and land you into the turbulence of a completely unpredictable future. My middle-class family had lived in Pakistani Punjab for generations. My dad was a civil engineer and academic at the University of Engineering and Technology in Lahore, where I studied later on. My mom was the matriarch of the family. We lived in campus housing, surrounded by other university staff doing the same and students residing in hostels. As far as the predictability of my life in Pakistan goes, unless something went awry, there was a path marked out for me. I would finish school and university, I would work professionally if I chose to. Then would come the expectations of marriage and children. Within this big picture, there were, of course, many smaller frames that made up the colourful collage of my life. Early morning walks with my grandmother have a special place in my memory. We used to walk through Jinnah Gardens, then called Lawrence Gardens, in the middle of Lahore City. I would collect leaves write down the botanical names of the trees they'd fallen from, and go home to press them. I had reams and reams of books with beautifully pressed leaves. Walking in Leafy Centennial Park in Sydney takes me back to those days. I attribute my love of trees to those walks of my childhood and happily embrace the label of a greeny tree hugger, even though it's used as a derogatory tag to describe someone from my political party. Just thinking of the long, hot summer afternoons spent eating mangoes, freshly salted fruits like falsas and jamans, makes my mouth water. When the monsoon rains broke, the dry, hot season with their thunderous roar, all the neighbourhood kids would get together and float paper boats in front yards full of murky brown water up to our knees. So I guess pretty average childhood like any other child. We did, though, grow up because... Of course, Pakistan was a colonized country. Uh, we lived under the British Raj for a couple of hundred years. So we did grow up hearing about the stories of the partition and you know the kicking out of, uh, of the British um, out of what was then India. But you know, weirdly enough, we also grew up with this narrative which filtered down to us very strongly that so-called developed Western nations were so much better than us you know, um, that they had reached equality in everything, that politics was so honest and so different there. Yeah, I I tell you, I kind of laugh with sadness as well because, you know, when I started my life in New South Wales Parliament in that first year, 10 Liberal MPs um, either left Parliament or went to the backbench under allegations of corruption. So that myth of, you know, Australia being corruption-free political system was shattered pretty quickly for me. Uh, but, of course, and, you know, I grew up in the late 60s and 70s, and it was quite a different world to when I became a teenager and when, um, you know, th- things started to change and we had kind of more pretty strict dictators that came into power in Pakistan. Um, and, but that idea that we were always thought of as someone who had to be improved by white people or Western nations was, al- was always there, like, I think... If I'm really honest, you know, a lot of our minds are colonised um, because it was hammered into us from day one. You know, we learned English at school. Uh, everything in school was in English. I learned Urdu as, as a language. Um, so there was this idea. And and that was one of the reasons, I guess, I came to Australia. Because I did think, you know, that as corruption set in in Pakistan, I believe that our children's life would be much better in a country like that. Um, my rose-coloured glasses started coming off slowly as I realised that, of course, you know, some of the issues that we had been speaking about in Pakistan, like, like sexism, for instance, is, is, a, universal, is a universal fight. Um, there's no place that is free from it. Um, and it, it does, you know, yes, Pakistan, and I think especially these days with the rise of Islamophobia there is a special category in the way Muslims around the world are treated and have been treated. And it's in Australia, I find that since coming here in the last 30 years, it has actually
0: become much worse. Mm. Um, thank you, Marine. We're going to delve into that, the conversation about Islamophobia in Australia soon. I want to just uh, stay on the conversation about your family, your ancestry. Um, you know, you come from quite an impressive family. In spite of those stereotypes of, you know, Muslims being regressive and and backwards, the reality is that you're an incredibly accomplished individual, and you come from an accomplished family, and I wondered if you could talk to us a little bit about your family.
1: Sure, so like I said, my dad was a civil engineer, and weirdly enough, all his four kids are civil engineers. My (laughs) husband's a civil engineer. My daughter's a civil engineer. (laughs) And, And the reason, I guess, for all four of us becoming civil engineers, um, or going to uni, for, for example, is that my mum and dad were quite adamant that all their four children went to university. Of course, education in Pakistan, as it is anywhere else, is, is, you know, a way to open up your minds to, you know, to get a good job, and that's important everywhere. But for my dad, it was really about us opening up our minds, thinking critically, you know, kind of finding a place in the world through education. Um, engineering for me uh, was specifically, um, I guess, an aim because it is very male dominated. It was very male dominated in Pakistan. Civil engineering still is in Australia. There's still very few women um, in there. And for me, it was a way to kind of prove a point that you know, women could do everything that um, anyone else could do. Um, so that's kind of a, a bit of my family in terms of engineering. We spread all over the world. Um, my generation of people in Pakistan, um, many of them have left Pakistan, so there's been a kind of, huge drain on the country, and a lot of them um, left you know, because, to make a better life, I guess. Um, like I said, like, I grew up at a time when we were taught by our parents that honesty and integrity were the most important things. And I tell a little bit of a story in the book about my dad and how black and white he was in terms of integrity. Um, Once um, a a student of his, who had passed his degree, came to, it was um, an international student, came to thank him as they were going back to their country, I think they were from Palestine, Um, and brought with them a box of mangoes um, to just as a token of appreciation Um, They were invited in, you know, tea, coffee, all of that. And then as he was about to leave, my dad handed him back the box of mangoes and said, "Um, I'm sorry, I can't take this from you because I can't live with the perception that I may have helped you in some way, shape or form um, to get through your degree. And I was there, I was, I think, about 10 or 12. And I felt like very embarrassed. And I said, what a terrible thing to do. The poor guy, you know, came with love. Uh, but you know, later on, I do realize that this was his way of making sure that he was honest and you know had that integrity um, in everything he did. So that's kind of the kind of the world that I grew up in. But by the time I got to the age where I started working, um, corruption had set in in politics, in um, just you know in the bureaucratic system. And my husband and I didn't really want our kids. Um, to, to, to keep fighting um, the system all the time. Well lo and behold, we're here fighting the system. I think some people just have their path cut out for them. Um,
0: and that's the reason a lot of people in Pakistan um, left at that time. Um, thank you, Mahreen. There's one more question about family before we move on to politics. But, you know, um, I think, like, you, you've already mentioned your children quite a few times and other family members. When I read out your bio, you just sound so incredibly busy and uh, you've had such an incredibly amazing professional life. And so I wanted to ask you how you, as an intersectional feminist, balance your work-life collision, your, your family life with all your professional and political responsibilities. Can I be completely honest with you? You can't. There is no
1: balance, frankly. And I do, there isn't. There isn't, it's, it's kind of a myth that you can balance the kind of work that people like me and you do, and that that everything is perfect and balanced. It just isn't, and I do, I did actually reflect on that quite a bit um, in the book when I talk about whether, look back and think whether all I've done was worth it. Um, You know, I have had to give up many things, and you know, especially since coming into politics. um, You know, friendships have been, I guess, um, you know, kind of one of those things that have been left behind because you, you just don't have time. You can't do everything, you know. No one's superhuman. Um, so you, you do give up some things um, to get other things. I mean, I've, my family here is my husband and my two kids. That's it. We don't have any more family here. And their support and their love for me has been so incredible. I mean, they have very graciously um, kind of just accepted that this is what mum is going to do, and, you know, and help me wherever they can uh, to be part of that you know, f- mission or whatever you can call it.
0: Well, it's funny you should say that. I, I actually got a text message from your son just before we came out on stage saying, I'm just wishing you both all the best, please look after my mum. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, um, I, I just want to add one more question on that before I go on. But, you know, like uh, Gandhi used to talk about how, for him, in moments of peace, when he used to look for just moments of peace, he would weave clothing. You know, he would find something quite hum- human and mundane to do. What do you do, when, wh- what do, what do? How do you find time for peace and clarity? And what are the activities that you do to help you disconnect from the chaos of politics? For me,
1: um, if Gandhi was weaving, for me, it's cooking. I just love to cook. I love to cook for people. And that's the way I reconnect as well with friends and, um, you know, others, um, other people that I love. Um, I I try and cook as much as I can. Um, And I, you know, seven, eight years ago, I became a vegetarian. And so a whole new world of cooking opened up for me. Um, I grew up in a family where, I mean, I guess most people love food and cooking, but it was for my mum. It was um, her thing as well. And she actually gave me a handwritten cookbook of her recipes, of her mother's recipes when I moved to Australia. Um, and so when I cook with those recipes, it takes me back to Pakistan. Um, yeah, it's just wonderful. But I do have, do other things as well. Like I've been watching the second series of Bridgerton. Uh, <laughs> you
0: know, <laughs> Recently, you, you know, you, you've, you've got to keep your mental health in some way, shape or form. I I totally agree, and I feel like that's why uh, that was an important question and and an important answer, to remind people that we're human, you know, and that, uh, you know, you watch TV and cooking in addition to all the work you have to do. Um, And now now I do want to move on to politics, uh, particularly, specifically within the context of your book. And I I just want to uh, give people a little bit of a context in which this dialogue happens uh, for me as the interviewer. I remember when I was 10 years old, I started seeing the first news reports about Pauline Hanson. It was 1996. I saw snippets of her maiden speech on live and national television. And even as a kid, I remember thinking this is bad, you know, that we're in trouble. And I, I remember realizing that it was me and my family who were under attack. And, you know, I was under attack in the only country that I ever knew. And already I was being told I wasn't welcome and that there was something wrong. And I remember at a very young age being immediately disinterested and disconnected from politics, from Australian politics because of that experience. Immediately knowing that Australia, and more specifically Australian politics, were not for me. It was not something that I would be uh, welcomed into. And I carried that with me for 22 years. It wasn't until you were sworn in to the upper house as the first Muslim female senator that I began to feel like this country is for me and politics is for me and for our community. And there's a, a, a a fantastic chapter which is called The Best and Worst of Politics. I feel like that is, for me, the best and the worst of politics, talking about Pauline Hanson and talking about your... You and I, I have to be, you know, fully transparent here. Pauline Hanson has COVID at the moment, and she's hurt so many people of colour and, and First Nations people that over the last few days, I've seen some people saying some nasty things. Uh, for us as Muslims, we we don't we don't participate in that kind of um, of hatred, even even when it's somebody that's hurt us. We try to be respectful, and so we would say that we wish we hope that she recovers and that it's a speedy and and healthy recovery. Um, But I did want you to take this opportunity to talk about some of this nastiness in politics that you've lived through, and then what what are the best elements for you? Um,
1: I hope she does recover, but I hope she doesn't win tomorrow at the election, (laughs) if I'm really really frank with you. Um, yes, that's another thing, I guess, Mohammed, that I never expected of Australia. Like I said, I grew up with this narrative of these countries being, um, you know, respectful to everyone that lived here. Um, my dad actually came here in 1957. That I didn't talk about that on the Colombo Plan, which was a scholarship system for um, you know global south countries to study in um, global north countries. And he um, um, went back to Pakistan then after doing his master's and um, got married and had us kids. And we actually grew up. He he loved Australia. Um, He said so many times during his life that Sydney was the most beautiful place in the world, you know, after Lahore. Um, and uh, yeah. <laughs> now, there's a saying, you know, we Lahores love our city. And there's this very famous saying in Pakistan that you, uh, if you haven't seen Lahore, you haven't seen anything. Um, but he did relate to us stories of, of, you know, what a great time he had here. We watched up growing. he was an amazing photographer, movies of, you know, the Sydney Harbour Bridge, Opera House, you know, Koalas, Kangaroo. Heck I even had a book of Blinky Bill when I was growing up living in Pakistan we had a gum tree. Um, so, you know, I, I did not expect um, the hatred towards Muslims or minority communities or First Nations people. Um, and especially I didn't expect that hatred to flow onto to me when I started um, in, pol- in Parliament. Well, the day I did my first speech in the Senate was the day after Fraser Anning, who used to be a First Nations Senator, did his first speech as well. So after Pauline Hansen's, you know, being swamped with Muslims and all of that hatred um, came this speech, which was also so anti-Muslim, so anti-immigrant um, that... And for me, you know, for someone to stand up in the highest office in, in this country and say those things and then people line up to shake their hand is... It was just... It was obscene. It really was. Um, One of the reasons I really wanted to move from state politics to federal politics was Pauline Hanson and and the hate that had filtered through in the federal parliament. Hate that was piled on people who were not even there to defend themselves or kind of rebut. Um, And I thought, well, it was time to at least try and do that. But it still amazes me that it was in 2018 when I became the first Muslim woman to enter the Senate. And the hun- only the hundredth woman at that. It, it still shocks me that that's the place where we are in Australian politics and that we've gone backwards on a number of counts. Of course, gender is one of them, but our parliaments reflect, don't reflect at all the incredible like, street and suburbs that I live in. That place is so radically different to my life uh, in my home and in my street and in my suburb, that it just cannot, that place cannot properly govern our country because it doesn't have the people that is, it is trying to make laws for or govern for. Um, but I think it's not, when we talk about Pauline Hansen as well and the impact on especially Muslim communities and First Nations communities of what uh, One Nation has said and done, I think we forget as well that it's not just her, that it has been, you know, government politicians that have done exactly the same. It has been opposition politicians who have stood there and dog-whistled as well. And that has all led into the normalisation of what we see now in the community. Um, And I have to say this, that that has been part and parcel of what happened in Christchurch when an Australian man went there and shot 51 Muslims.
0: Um, we are absolutely going to talk about Christchurch, so next point, um, but I want to stay on this because I promised myself there is so much, uh, there are so many reasons for us to be loud. Um, but I, I, I promised myself that we wouldn't just talk about the things that make us angry or cause us pain, but also some of the positives. So we're talking about some of the worst aspects of Australian politics, in addition to your, your own presence uh, for people in our community, what, do you, what would you say are some of the best aspects of Australian politics?
1: For me, the best aspects of Australian politics are not within parliaments, they're outside of parliaments. Um, for me, the best aspects of politics are the people who get involved and engaged the people who make, pick up the phone and call a politician and ask them to make a change. Uh, and you would think that picking up a phone and calling someone asking to change something wouldn't really make that change, but it has. Even in my journey, it's happened twice. And I'll give you one of those examples. A woman once called my office and said that she had been dismissed from her work because she hadn't told her employer that she was pregnant at the time of her interview and her hiring. And initially my team and I thought, that is not possible. Like, how in 2016 is that possible in Australia? That's complete and blatant discrimination. Uh, But then we thought, no, we should dig it up a bit more. And we found that in the New South Wales Anti-Discrimination Act, that could be done. someone, if they don't declare that they are pregnant at the time of the interviewer of hiring, can be dismissed by um, their employer. That was, I think New South Wales was probably the only state at that time. There could have been one or two more that could do that. So we got on a mission and we got that law changed. Um, So I think it's the courage of those people who go out to rallies, who, you know, hand out at election time, who stand, rain, hail, or shine, you know, in uh, polling booths to, um, to, to talk to communities. That is the best hope in politics. But when you look at parliaments and, you know, legislation, of course things have changed there as well. But they only change because people hanker for that change. I can tell you politicians are way behind... Um, in their thinking and in their ideas, way behind the community, and it is only when the public forces politicians to change that they do change. That's that's been my experience.
0: Thank you, Mahreen. Um, let's talk about Christchurch. Uh, so, in case you don't remember, uh, in 2019, in March, an Australian-born white supremacist entered into two mosques in Christchurch and massacred 51 Muslims peacefully conducting their Friday prayers and injured dozens of others. Um, If you talk to most Muslims in Australia about the darkest period for Muslims in this country, most of them will point to that day. And it was absolutely the the darkest and the most tragic day of my life as an Australian. Um, I wanted to ask you about the climate that led to the catastrophe, how it impacted you personally and politically, and what was it like in the aftermath for you? I should also add um, one of the most beautiful and uh, breathtaking pieces of writing in your book are about the, the, the Christchurch Massacre and the aftermath. And so I really want to keep reminding you all about how fantastic this book is, and we'll, we'll have a taste of. Um, what Maureen has to say to us today, but if you really want the, the full depth of this, definitely read the book as well.
1: Maybe, Mohamed, if I read a bit about that first, and then we go into what led to it and what's happening now. Okay. And like you, that has been one of the worst times of my life in Australia as well. The Christchurch attacks have left a permanent deep wound on me. It is a lingering sadness that has forever become part of me. I had an opportunity to visit Al Noor Mosque and meet the community three months after the attack. I was invited by Shakti Community Council, a nonprofit organization serving migrant and refugee women of Asian, African, and Middle Eastern origin. They had been providing frontline support to the families affected by the massacre. I remember pulling up outside the mosque and being shocked at the normalcy of the world around it. It's a modest mosque in the middle of a fairly nondescript suburban area. But as I walked into the prayer area, I felt the electricity of what had happened here. This was the front door where the first victim was killed, a man who thought the killer was there to pray and so had welcomed him. Here was the hallway the killer must have run down, leading to the prayer room where he killed worshippers indiscriminately. There was the car park where he shot even more, before returning from his car with a reloaded gun to kill the wounded. The victims were as young as three. I did my namaz and prayed for the dead in the hall in which they had been killed so brutally. I sat with the families of those who had been targeted and heard their trauma—a mother now without a son, a young widow, a fatherless child. Amid their immense grief, I felt their strength and determination to survive and rebuild their lives. I had hoped to lighten their load. Instead, they helped me deepen my resolve to forge a path against hate. And I tell you, that was such a defining moment for me. Up to then, of course, I had been highlighting um, and, you know, pushing for politics to change, for politicians to change, for our laws to change, for society to change, so that people who are not deemed to look like Australians or what some think Australians should look like should be treated with the same respect, dignity as them. But this moment, it felt like you know the world had changed. And many of us actually had been talking about something like this. It wasn't that we didn't know that something like this could happen. We had been saying that the atmosphere of hate um, and Islamophobia in Australia could culminate in something that would be terrible. But no one listened. No one had been listening. Like even now, I tell you, Um, And I've been speaking about um, Christchurch quite a lot, pushing for the Australian government to act on this, because, you know, we have to reckon with the fact that the man was Australian. And just recently, when 10 people, at least 10 black people, have been killed in Buffalo mercilessly as well, we know that that killer was actually inspired by the manifesto of the Christchurch killer. Um, even now, like no one, literally no one other than me, is speaking about this. Um, but even after Christchurch, and like I said, I often talk about it in, in Parliament, I question um, politicians, the government politicians, to ask them what they are doing about the rise of the far right, because there is a rise of the far right in Australia, and it is extremely concerning. I don't get many responses, but I do get shouted down and heckled by people, even while. I'm talking about this incident. Um, Just not very long ago, a liberal senator just kept shouting back at me saying the killer was a socialist, the killer was a socialist. When we know, and this is what the New Zealand Royal Commission has told us quite clearly, that this was a person who was so influenced by far-right ideology and Islamophobia, there is a real reluctance to accept. I mean, I don't think a single government politician has ever uttered the word Islamophobia. When I talk about far-right extremism, they immediately stand up and say, yes, we will deal with extremisms of all kind. So they refuse, refuse to act on that. Um, And for me, my resolve, like I said, it's even stronger to make sure that in Australia, like we, so many of us come from so many different parts of the world. Um, you know, there's more than 50% of us now who were either born overseas or whose parents were born overseas. This country belongs to First Nations people. It is their land. And yet, far-right extremism, and mostly targeted towards First Nations, people of colour, and Muslims in the community, is is on the rise. Um, and one of the reasons for that is that there are so few of us in positions of influence and power in politics, that these issues just get sidelined, because I guess it's lack of empathy. It's people just don't care. They don't think it's important. But you know, if I'm really frank, it is also white supremacy. It is a way of thinking where uh, you know um, people privileged um, to have had, I guess, the the platform of being white um, think that their way of doing things is the best and some others just don't come into that equation.
0: Thank you, Mahreen. I, I, I still get shivers when I hear you read that section. Um, I wanted to ask you, you know, actually after, because you were just talking about white supremacy. After the Christchurch massacre, I remember one front page newspaper article that had actually run a, a baby photo of the man who committed the massacre. And the headline was something like, beautiful angel turned into mascular. And I've often asked myself um, why he was afforded that privilege of being humanized. I mean, nobody ran pictures of Bin Laden as a baby. And put it on the front newspaper and said, you know, beautiful innocent baby becomes mass murderer. Why, why do you think there is this culture of white supremacy that's threaded through our country? And what do you think we can do about it? And, and the second part of the question I think is the most important part because we have hundreds of people here in the audience. And I know that everyone here is sincere in their attempt to actually address this issue black, brown, and white standing together in solidarity. And so what is your advice on how we address these issues?
1: Well, I think we can't get past the fact that Australia over the last 200 years is a nation that has been built upon the violent dispossession of First Nations people. And we still don't acknowledge that. And when we say we, it's, I think it's, it's our, our political system, our governments, we don't have treaties. We, there's no truth telling. We don't, we haven't implemented, um, you know, what hundreds of First Nations people got together um, and talked about um, um, at Uluru a few years ago, the statement from the heart. Um, and there still isn't sincerity in, in, you know, both political parties to, to really um, talk about truth telling, have a justice commission. And I reckon unless we can acknowledge that and address it, and First Nations have justice in this country, it's very hard for us to tackle what is the trickling down of that same white superiority, white supremacy um, that impacts other people of color in this country. I guess why we haven't changed it is no one wants to give up power, right? People in power don't want, they want to stay in power. Um, And and that's that's the issue that we have here. we have, after the, you know, revelations was in, in 2021 of the sexism and the sexual assault that happened um, in Parliament and the discrimination and the bullying and the harassment, there has been a bit more talk about the white privilege of how that place dip, drips in patriarchy, which has led to all these things. Um, but obviously not enough yet. And that conversation will never change with the current crop of politicians. Um, you know, there's so too few First Nations people. There is literally less than a handful of people of color. Um, and how will that change? I think for me, that's a question I think about a lot. How to make that change? You know, while I'm very proud of, you know, my party room, which has 60% women, three of them black and brown women, I still think every single political party has to do much better. Um, at making sure that the face, body, and soul of politics represents the face, body, and soul of our community. Um, There has to be deliberate action. It's not going to change by itself. You know, the path to politics is not easy for anyone. But if you are like a, a brown Muslim woman or a First Nations woman, it is absolutely much harder. I mean, I'll give you my example. You know, I migrated here when I was 28 in 1992. I had no connections to the pathways, um, the tried and tested pathways into politics. And there are tried and tested pathways into politics. And a vast majority of politicians come to parliaments through those pathways. It's your networks, it's the private boys club, it's, um, you know, um, being in student politics, it's then becoming a staffer for a politician, um, it is all of that. It's, you know, well-connected to money. It's all of that. So, you know, I'm pretty much an outsider from, from um, you know, coming to politics. But even in politics, I think things have to change in politics as well. I'm pretty much an outsider while I'm inside that parliament, you know. I, I don't go to the places where networking happens after parliament breaks, which are the, you know, the clubs and the, and the pubs. That, that's not my scene. So, you know, I'm actually very glad that I don't do that, because that's where all the corruption and the, you know, sexism and the harassment stems from as well. But that's the situation there. So even when you have made your way into politics, it's, it's, an easy, it's a difficult path. And, and I thought quite hard about talking about that in this book, because I don't want to uh, deter other women like me and saying, oh my God, this is too hard. Uh, But I just thought the reality has to be said. Uh, And I want, you know, I want there to be hope as well. Like you you actually can, yes, it's hard, but you can do politics on your own terms. You don't have to become part of the system. Although that might be the easier pathway, it's always very nice and cozy in the tent. Um, you can still be outside the tent and try and influence change. And, you know, there are many examples. Many people have done that. For me, one of the examples from my political life has been um, changing abortion laws and decriminalising abortion in New South Wales. I didn't have, like, the Greens didn't have the numbers. I was one of, um, you know, a minority um, kind of politicians in there. But we still made that happen, and we made that happen because people in the community
0: showed solidarity. Um, I did. I do have a question on um, that particular topic um, so you, 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 hit, you, you touched on the subject of abortion um, you have a fantastic chapter in the book called Feminist as Fuck um, and so the, I guess the last question I want to ask you is um, what does it mean to be a feminist and more specifically an intersectional feminist in Australia in the year 2022 and This was a follow-up question, but I'll just ask them together because we don't have a lot of time. On the topic of abortion, you know, there are so many misconceptions about Islam and about Muslims. We're often seen as the archaic backwards religion and community, but actually Muslim theology has always been very progressive on the issue of abortion for hundreds of years. And so I wondered if you could talk to us about um, what it means to be a feminist in Australia today and also your your views and your advocacy on the particular topic of abortion as a Muslim woman in Australia.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, well, that was another thing that shocked me about Australia, that abortion was still a crime in New South Wales, and my kids often laugh and say to me, it took a brown Muslim woman who was thought of as very conservative to push for change in that direction. Uh, But for me, um, you know, women should have the unequivocal legal right to make decisions about their own bodies. For me, it was, of course, an issue of health, but first and foremost, it was an issue of women's rights. Um, and we're seeing the debate now in uh, the US, Roe v. Wade, and how overturning that will basically um, you know, take away those rights. And that was the situation in New South Wales. We had the right to make decisions about our bodies through a very precarious... Um, law that was passed by district court. Um, so that was it. It was a judgment, not even a law. Sorry. So I wanted to make sure that that would be made legal, and so we had that right that could not be, you know, revoked easily. Um, and I had heard so many stories from women in Australia about how difficult access to abortion was, um, and it's. It was people living, if you're living on the eastern seaboard of Australia, it's all well and good. Uh, it's still very expensive, but if you are living in um, rural, regional Australia, if you're a First Nations woman, if you're a person of colour, um, if you don't have the money, it gets harder and harder. Women had to travel hundreds and hundreds of kilometres um, to have pregnancy terminations. So kind of that was, for me, um, the push. And, and like I, um, you know, I said earlier, it is about the rights. It is about rights. That's for me, and I am very proudly and unapologetically feminist as fuck, as you said. My feminism actually was fired up in Pakistan um, by an aunt of mine uh, who was as loud and proud as me about being a feminist. And I grew up, um, you know, often hearing her fighting uh, with people in the family, in the community about about women's rights. Um, And I've kind of, that gender lens has always stayed with me. Uh, but feminism has changed over time, and it should change over time. And so for me, my feminism is intersectional. Um, I I think that you can't be a feminist if you ignore, for example, the rights of trans women. Um, you can't be a feminist if you ignore the plight of migrant women. You can't be a feminist if you ignore um, the struggles of First Nations women. Uh, I think we still have a long way to go there. I remember being pulled up at a forum in New South Wales Parliament by a a very famous feminist uh, who said, by talking about intersectional feminism, I was creating divisions. Um, But again, that's something that I've become quite used to when I talk about racism. I'm the one causing division. When I talk about intersectional feminism, I'm the one causing division, as if those issues, racism itself, or, or not considering um, you know, each and every woman within feminism are not the problems, and it's me speaking about them that they are. Uh, but I, I will keep talking about them. I think there is more and more conversation happening about them, and, that, and that's incredible.
0: Thank you, Mahreen. I think you deserve a round of applause for that statement. And I want to, I think we're almost out of time, but I would like an opportunity to take one or two questions before we wrap up today. Just to say thank you very much. I'm very glad I made the decision to come here. Could you talk a little bit about how your faith, your Islamic faith, um, sort of drives your passion and your conviction, which is so apparent to hear today?
1: Yeah. Well, thank you very much for that. Thanks for being here. Um, So... I guess what drives me is a number of things. Obviously, you know, what, what makes me who I am is, um, is my faith, is my culture, is the, you know, the, the knowledge and the, you know, teachings of my elders and my teachers. Uh, for me, it is very important that religion um, does not kind of intersect with the secular politi- politics that we live in. It is, it is really, really important for me. And I'll give you one example of how I'm treated differently. Um, when, when I took my oath in Parliament, I did not do it on the Quran or any book, and I, did want, I deliberately did that, even though I'm still accused of um, you know, doing it, while other people, and there have been hundreds who have sworn on the Bible and never get criticised for that, because, because my religion, nor anyone else's, should dictate how laws are made in this country. But my religion and culture has made me who I am, and I carry those values with me. Uh, Maureen, I know you're a senator and I really look up to you, but I know you're here to promote your book, and so I just wanted to ask, uh, is there anything as a writer that you found you could uh, speak more freely about, or did you even feel constricted by when you were writing your book in comparison
0: to being a senator? Thanks.
1: (laughs) That's a really good question. I did feel actually a lot freer in writing my book than even though I speak... Quite loudly and truthfully in in the Senate, but obviously, um, you know, you 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 are I guess constrained by party politics as well. Um, so in the book, I felt because it was my story, I could be more freer in talking about what what my vision for the world or what my vision uh, for Australia is. But I think you know, I, I wrote it still being in Parliament, uh, and my, uh, Mohammed and I were talking about that earlier as well. So. Probably there are some things I have kept out of the book (laughs) and haven't spoken about, maybe in the second book. (laughs) But I did want to write this book because a lot of politicians write their um, kind of stories after they've left politics. I actually didn't want to do that. I wanted kind of people to know what politics is like. And after reading the book, I wanted people to tell me what they wanted from me while I was still in politics. Um, so that, you know, I, I, could, I could help change myself as well and do things differently if I needed to,
0: um, to, um, to change politics in Australia. Thank you, Mahreen. Um, it is such a fantastic book, and I, I really strongly recommend you all go and grab a copy I strongly recommend you come to the signing table and get Mahreen to sign your copy. And if you want my honest advice, grab a copy, not just for yourself, but for one of your racist relatives. We all have one. <laughs> um, and maybe even get Mahreen to sign it, sign it to them. Mahreen, um, thank you so, so much for this amazing dialogue. Wishing you all the best in the future, especially tomorrow. And um, I want to finish by saying assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum assalam. Thank you,
1: everyone. And thank you, Mohammed. Thanks for listening.
0: If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and to rate our channel.